in the 1600s, these sermons here that I'm preaching right now would be seen as heretical and considered a danger to society. Saul is persecuting the church, and now Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Implying that there is this inseparable connection between the church and the head who is Jesus Christ. The church is not a mixed people of saved and unsaved. The church is not a temple of the Holy Spirit and then a temple of Satan at the same time. The church is not a temple composed of holy bricks and evil bricks at the same time. The church is not the body of Christ with members who are in Christ and members who are in Adam. Let me tell you that there is no such thing as online church. There is no online church. That's not church. Virtual church. And those who name the name of Christ, those who claim to be Christians, and they refuse to join themselves to a local church to serve, love, be loved, be served, and instead keep just watching sermons from home, they need to repent. They need to repent from their sins and obey the Lord and find a healthy church for them to serve. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house or temple to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may be seated. Amen. Let us pray once again. Oh, blessed Father, blessed Son, and blessed Spirit. God, you created us. You made us with a rational soul, a rational mind. And we depend on you completely, totally. To empower every capacity that you have given us. We are not sufficient. I'm not sufficient on my own. This wonderful congregation is not sufficient on her own. We need you. So please help me. 
unless you are moving in this place, all the words that I say are nothing. So please, Lord, please, Holy Spirit, make these words life, holiness in the hearts of your people. Fire our hearts with holy affections for you, Lord. Deliver us from the schemes of the evil one. He has many birds right now trying to snatch the seed. So we pray that you'd help us, like Abraham, to put these birds away. Be glorified this morning. Prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. His name, Abraham Cheer. Has anybody ever heard about Abraham Cheer? No. So many heroes of the faith that we know nothing. Abraham Cheer, born 1626, died in 1668. He was the pastor of the Calvinistic Baptist Church in Plymouth, England, in 1648. And he was pastoring during the time of the Commonwealth. If you remember in England, the time of Commonwealth was with Oliver Cromwell. And he had, uh, especially after Oliver Cromwell, he had Charles II taking over, and he starts bringing persecution, especially to those Christians that did not want to conform with the Church of England. So that's when he was pastoring during that season. And he was one who was born in England, was baptized into the Church of England as an infant. And since he was a little kid, he was taught that the Church was a mixed gathering of believers and unbelievers. Uh, Michael Hakins, he's, he's writing about his testimony. He says, and now quoting, uh, he quotes part of Cheer's own words. He says, around 1648, Abraham Cheer says that he was convinced, and here his words, of his duty to the Lord by evidence of scriptural light about the true nature of the church. And he joined himself in a holy covenant to walk in all the ordinances of the Lord blameless to the best of His light and power in fellowship, and listen to this, with a poor and despised people. These poor and despised people were the Plymouth Calvinistic or particular Baptist in England. And that's when he renounced his theology of infant baptism, Renounce the idea that the church is a mixed congregation. He comes to the understanding that the church, the identity of the church is one of people who have been saved, regenerated by the Lord, and the baptism should be reserved for those who are saved. Abraham Cheer was first imprisoned in 1661 for his Baptist convictions of the, that the church is supposed to be made up of regenerate church members. And he was to be in prison for the greater part of the time in his ministry. So much, much of his ministry was in jail. He was first in prison in Exeter, 
And this jail is described as a living tomb, a living gravesite, a sink of filth and profligacy, a nasty place where he was in jail. And he's set free from there, then he goes back to preach. They tell him he cannot preach the, the doctrine that he was preaching, and he gets arrested again, and you see the going on and back. In 1665, he's released and arrested again, and the courts charge him, Abraham Cheer, with holding unlawful religious meetings and with refusing to conform to the Church of England. He died in prison after some months of illness in 1668. Do you think about Abraham Cheer, a godly man, a faithful pastor? Sentenced, arrested, and basically put to death because of his conviction that the church is made up, the identity of the church is one of believers, and that the baptism should be reserved for believers. Abraham Cheer is one name in the large hall of the early Baptists who suffered horribly because of their convictions about the church. And the sermon that I'm preaching today, I'll be preaching next Lord's Day, if you think about that, in the 1600s, 1700s, this sermon here that I'm preaching right now would be seen as heretical and considered a danger to society. Because you could not preach that the church is composed of only the saved ones and the baptism should be reserved for those who are saved. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, the identity of the church. Uh, in our last sermon, last Lord's Day, we saw how with the Reformation, the Bibles were brought back to people's hands so they could read the Bible and they could see how precious the church is. Remember that we look at Ephesians and we saw how in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that the church, each local church is a theater, is a theater of God's manifold wisdom. So this local church here is a theater, just like any other healthy, sound local church is a theater of God's manifold wisdom, where he shows how his wisdom is foolish to the world, that through the crucified Jesus, he would unite a people to himself. And Paul says also that the church is not only the theater of the manifold wisdom of God, but the church is the theater of God's glory. So he finishes chapter 3 of Ephesians saying, To God be the glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations. The church will be eternally God's theater where He displays His glory. And people make so little about the church. Because they make so little about God. But as the Reformation came and they were able to look at the importance of the church, they were also able to look at something else, the nature of the church. What is the church supposed to be like? And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So the outline is simple. We're going to be looking at the nature of the church as a heavenly embassy or a heavenly assembly of God's people. And then we're going to move to the nature of the church and the Trinitarian nature of our God. And that will help us to understand what the church is supposed to be. And that has been the heart of the theology of the Baptists. The nature of the church, the importance of the church, the nature of the church. So, the nature of the church as a heavenly embassy or assembly. 
Think about as Christians were able now to go back to these scriptures with the Reformation. Remember, that's why we, we, we cannot cut sharp between Reform and Baptist. Because the Baptist theology is coming out of the Reformation because the Reformation is taking us back to the Bible. And as they were with their Bibles in their hands, they were able to question, talk about the nature of the church. What is the church supposed to be? And as you study the Reformation, you know that one of the major questions of the Reformers was, what are the marks of a true church? What is a true church supposed to be? Remember, now they have been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, and it's not like they can go to any place in the neighborhood and find a different church. There's only one church. And they need to struggle and wrestle with the understanding of the church. Paul Aves, he says, Reformation theology is largely dominated by two questions. How can I obtain a gracious God, and where can I found the true church? And here's important. The two questions are inseparably related and constitute two aspects of the overriding concern of the 16th century man with the problem of salvation. And the doctrine of God, like he says, how can I find a gracious God? And, how, and where can I find a true church? Those are deeply connected. The doctrine of God and the doctrine of the church are inseparable. The church is glorious. The church is beautiful. The church is the theater of God's wisdom and glory because the church belongs to God. It's His. And we saw as we were studying the five points of the doctrines of grace how the Trinity is vital for the understanding of the church. We have the Father, the Father choosing the Son dying for that people and the Spirit applying the work in the people of God. So, for example, if we go to Ephesians chapter 1, we see clearly the Trinitarian aspect of the life of the church. So, Paul opens the letter to Ephesians by declaring the love of the triune God for His church. The Father predestined us. How was that predestination accomplished? Through the death of Jesus Christ. He died for us. He redeemed us. And now is that applied through the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. The Spirit seals the salvation. So it's this Trinitarian work of God that will help us to see the true nature of the church. And then once we understand the nature of the church, we can understand what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do. Amen? We have so much confusion about the church nowadays because people don't know what the church is supposed to be. What is the church? We have... So much confusion in churches today is because we know nothing about the identity of the church. You cannot, and you know that, by looking at and seeing the nature of something, you cannot use a mower as a sprayer to paint your house. Amen? That's very theologically deep. You're not going to use the mower as a sprayer to paint your house. Why? Because of the nature of the mower. You know what it is. You know what it's supposed to do. And the same thing can apply to the church. Once we know what the church is, we know what it's for. People have been treating the church as a club, as a nightclub, as a circus, as a cemetery. 
because they know nothing about the nature, the identity of the church. So, and as we are going to see, the identity of the church affects everything. Our church polity is affected by how we see the identity of the church. So, what is the church? If you're going to ask people, what is the church? Let's suppose you go and you meet with some friends who are not Christians, or even Christian friends, brothers and sisters, and you say, what is the church? And I tell you, the, the great majority of the people, they're going to think that the church is a building. Right? We, we think of the church as a building. What is the church? Oh, that building right across the street. We have this idea, this conception that it's this man-made organization and it's inseparable from a building. And that's why we need to know what the church is. Is the church a building? Can the church be the church without a building? We can meet at a park. We can meet at the beach. If we are meeting as a church, we are having church. We are being the church. And it has always been, as I mentioned, in the heart of the Baptists to wrestle and understand what the church is. Much of the reformers, they were holding to the idea that the church is a mix. It's a mixed congregation of believers and unbelievers. Coming from Augustine, or Augustine, from Augustine, when he tried to interpret one of the parables of Jesus, when he's talking about the world, Augustine interpreted it as the church, where you have the tares. And he's saying there that the church is the place where you have the good crop and you have the tares. And, but Jesus wasn't talking about the church, he was talking about the world. But that idea has continued, especially with the reformers, and that's why they were baptizing infants who were not saved. And you think about even with Constantine and, and trying to bring more and more people to the church, baptizing people by force, and suddenly they have this idea that the church is this mixed congregation of believers and unbelievers, and it's not true. As you look at the New Covenant promises in the Old Testament, it's very clear that all the members of the New Covenant will be saved. That's the great contrast with the Old Covenant. The New Covenant community will be marked by all the members being indwelled with the Holy Spirit, knowing God. I like what uh, Michael Reeves and Tim Chester writes. They say, the church, here's a definition, the church is the people for whom Christ died and who have found salvation in His name. To be saved is to be part of this people. You are not saved by being part of the church. You are part of the church by being saved. Amen? And that's what Peter tells us. That's, there is no way to read the New Testament and, and come out of the New Testament with the idea that the church is a mixed congregation of believers and unbelievers. So we see in 1 Peter, for example, 1 Peter 2, 9-10, But you, referring to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for His own possession. And here we start seeing how our understanding of the covenants are important. Because here we have continuity and discontinuity with the old covenant. We have the continuity that the church now is receiving the same titles that was given to whom? 
Israel under the Old Covenant. But there is this continuity now in the fact that all the members are saved. Newborn Christians. And he says that to all the members of the church, once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the purpose is for you to now, all the members of the church, to declare the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, according to Peter and the rest of the New Testament, it's very clear that the body is composed of members who are united to Christ by faith. Infants, unbelieving children, and unbelievers cannot proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as we think about the word church, so much confusion about church, the Greek ecclesia or ecclesia. First, do you know who first used that word in the New Testament? Church. Jesus. Jesus is the first one to use church in Matthew 16. He says that he will... uh, Build his church. You're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And Jesus is using the, the, the idea from the Old Testament of the assembly. That's the picture of the ecclesia, an assembly, assembly of God's people. So I have here the, the Greek word ecclesia, ecclesia, has nothing to do with a building in itself. Following the Old Testament use of this word, ecclesia is an assembly of people summoned, convocated by God with the purpose of reflecting His glory through worship. That's the main idea behind the word church. The church is an assembly. And why I'm talking about it's not a building. Building is so important, and I wish we had a church building. It's so important, but it's not the church. And I think that's one of the good things that the Lord is teaching us by not having a building. Because sometimes during the week, we meet a different place. And still, it's Salem Reformed Baptist. It's a church. It's our church there. And sometimes we need to meet in a different place. In Dallas. And it's the church there. And that helps us to be aware, to not think that the church is the building. And if you don't have a building, you cannot be a church. No. The church is the assembly those who were convocated by Jesus Christ to worship Him. And as we are talking about the nature of the church as this assembly, people coming face to face to hear the words of Christ, to worship Him through the singing, through prayer, through partaking of the ordinances, let me tell you that there is no such thing as online church. There is no online church. That's not church. Virtual church And those who name the name of Christ, those who claim to be Christians, and they refuse to join themselves to a local church to serve, love, be loved, be served, and instead keep just watching sermons from home, they need to repent. They need to repent from their sins and obey the Lord and find a healthy church for them to serve. Not only that, If you have a church with multi-sites, then you have multi-churches. Because church, by definition, is one group assembled together. 
And if you have two services in the morning, you actually have two churches. Did you know that? Oh, let's have two services. Then you're having two churches. Because by definition, church is the assembly of the people whom God called, and they're face to face together. And as soon as you have two, three services, you're having two, three churches. Because you're called to be with God's people, worship Him, knowing those people, loving them. And I know that goes contrary to our culture. I remember when we had to close the church for a little while, a few years ago, and I refused to preach through the internet. I said, I will not because that's not a church. And I don't want people to start thinking that we are having church by me preaching to a camera. That's not church. That's church. Mark Dever, he writes, as he's defining the church, he says, the church is primarily a regular assembly of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what a New Testament church is. It's not a building. Haken and the brother Wellam, they say, uh, I don't have here, but they say, the church is a group of regenerate, but not yet glorified. That's very important. Saved, but not perfect, not glorified. Christians were gathered together in the name, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, let me just go back here. So, as we, there are much more we could say about the church just for time's sake. What I want to us to see is the church, this local assembly, our identity is coming from heaven. Paul says that we right now are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In Colossians, he says the same thing. Set your minds and the things that are above, because we are there in Christ Jesus. Paul also tells us that our citizenship is where? In heaven, Philippians 3.20. Therefore, the church is a heavenly assembly. The church on earth is supposed to resemble the church in heaven. The Lord, when He's teaching us to pray, He says, Your will be done on earth what? as it is in heaven. Heaven is our home, is our place where the orders come from. It's from, that's, we, we want to resemble heaven. When you come to church, you don't want to resemble earth. And you don't want to resemble hell. You want to resemble heaven. That's the purpose. That's the nature of the church. The church is a, in heaven, let me tell you, the church in heaven is the church in heaven a mixed community of believers and unbelievers? So why would you do that in the church today? If the church in heaven is not composed of believers and unbelievers, why would we say that the church should be a mixed gathering? 
The church ought to be, the church must be a small miniature replica of heaven's unity on earth. D. Carson, he says, Each church is the full, each local church is the full manifestation in space and time of the one true heavenly eschatological new covenant church. Local churches should see themselves as outcroppings of heaven. Analogies of the Jerusalem that is above. Indeed, colonies of the new Jerusalem. Providing on earth a corporate and visible expression of the glorious freedom of the children of God. And once we see the church as this heavenly embassy, we will strive to protect the holiness of the church. Each local church is supposed to be a theater where the heavenly reality is in full display. People are supposed to come to the local church and as the author of Hebrews says, taste of the heavenly gift. Each local church, each faithful local church is an embassy of God's kingdom. What is an embassy? What is an embassy? We can say an embassy is an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another nation. It represents and it speaks for that foreign nation. So when an unbeliever comes to church, he must, he must not feel comfortable, but instead he must see a whole different nation. Sojourners, exiles, citizens of Christ's kingdom, they should be hearing Another voice, the voice of a commander that they don't know, that is Christ Jesus. They should be hearing songs that they never heard before about the triune God. And this reality has been the heart of Baptist ecclesiology. For the first Baptists in England, the nature of the church, the church composed of saved, regenerated, redeemed, and spirit-indwelt members, has always been of primary importance. And that, as we will see, affects everything else that we do as a church. Amen? Remember that we are an heavenly, a heavenly embassy, a heavenly assembly on this earth. And we must strive to reflect heaven. What are they doing in heaven? They're singing praises to the triune God. They're worshiping. They're serving. Him. There is joy. There is love. There is fear of the Lord, the angels. And we should resemble that in the church here on earth. Amen? So as we move, we need to move here to the nature of the church and the Trinitarian nature of our God. And that's so important as we are thinking about as God's revelation progresses to show us more and more about God and more and about, more about His people. We see that the church is a Trinitarian recreation. The people of God, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are many metaphors, in, especially in the New Testament. As you walk through the New Testament, there are many metaphors for the church. And all those metaphors are important because there is not only one metaphor that can express the beauty and the glory of the church. So, for example, we have the church pictured as an army. The church is described as an army, Ephesians chapter 6. The church is described as a field, as a family, as a vine, as a bride, as a flock, 
And all these metaphors are very important. But today I want to look at three metaphors. Because these three metaphors are very connected to the three persons of the Trinity. And that will help us to see the nature of the church. The first one is the church of God as the people of God. The church is described as the people of God. So Peter says that we once were not a people, but now we are his people. We are God's people. Frequently, we see the New Testament speaking of the church as God's people, his own possession. We belong to him. We are his people. Why? Because he created us. He made us. We belong to him. That's why we are his people. But you think about, okay, but in the Old Testament, Israel was also called God's people. Yes. But remember that there is continuity and discontinuity in the progression of God's revelation. And one of the main marks that the prophets are eager to declare of the new covenant is that this new covenant will create a people. In, there will be not a remnant, remnant. The whole people will be the remnant. Because all the members of the new covenant will be God's people, saved by Him. That's why they, they say that they will have the Spirit. Remember in the Old Testament how rare it was for one to have the Spirit coming and empowering? And the glory of the new covenant is that all the members, all the members will have the Spirit within them. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, that's a glorious statement. He says, Romans 8, 9, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Him. What does it tell us about the nature of the church? You gotta, you gotta be born again. You gotta have the Spirit within you. As I said, the theme of the people of God is traced through all the scriptures from Adam to the church. God from the beginning has created a people to belong to Him, to dwell with Him. But with the progression of God's revelation, we see a change in God's people. From a nation with a remnant to a specific body of regenerated people. And notice that we are the people of God. The people. Plural. A community. This image can also serve as a corrective to the strong individualism in American society. Hemet writes, For it reminds us that the church is a people, not a collection of isolated individuals, but a group of people. So as we think about the church as God's people... God is holy, therefore His people must be what? Holy. So one of the marks of the church is holiness. The church must be holy. What does it mean to be holy? Holy means to be consecrated, devoted to God, to His commandments, to His glory. And we must be, as a church, we must be completely, fully devoted, not to please other people, but to please our God. God's not only holy, but He's also love. Therefore, the church must reflect what? God's love. Holiness, love, must be the mark of God's people. To a church that was divided in, de in desperate need of help, Paul teaches them what love is. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And Paul is writing that not in a wedding ceremony, but to a church that is divided and lacking love. So we are to reflect as this heavenly embassy, God's people, to reflect His holiness and love. And imagine you come to a church and you see no love. People biting each other's backs, grumbling, no love. There's no reflection of God's character. And as we think about the people of God belonging to Him, and this love aspect, it reminds us the church is God's family. And that's why we, we, we call each other brothers and sisters. Because we belong to God and there's this holy loving affection between the members of the church. So the church is the people of God. They belong to God the Father because of His own initiative in choosing His people, adopting them in Christ, and giving them a new birth through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why the church is glorious, because it's God's church. It's God's people. Amen? One more. The church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. One of the most important descriptions of the church in the New Testament is that the church is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. So Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are the temple. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And you think about the the theme of the temple of the Holy Spirit. You read Genesis 1 and 2, and what you're reading in Genesis 1 and 2 is God building a temple. That's the temple building project. He creates the world, and there is a, even as you move through the creation account, you see that there is the the whole creation. You start getting closer, 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 and then there is the Eden. It's like a holy of holies, where He dwells with Adam and Eve. So, With the fall, God starts once again the project of creating a new temple for Himself to dwell with His people. And we go through through the Old Testament, you have the tabernacle, you have the temple, and ultimately culminates in whom? Who is the fulfillment of the temple? Jesus Christ. He is the true fulfillment of the temple. And then all those who are in Jesus become what? The temple. If Christ is the temple and all those who believe in Him are in Him, then we become the temple of God. It's important to know that in the Old Testament, God's people were never referred to as temple. In the Old Covenant, God's people are never referred to as the temple of God. Why? Because they had a temple. They were never called the temple of God. Just with this change 
that the church, now God's people, are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this temple is no longer like under the Old Covenant, made with bricks as a physical structure. Instead, the church is a temple in which each brick is a Christian possessed of the Holy Spirit. So think about if the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is dwelling with those who belong to the church, then we must make sure that those who are aspiring to be baptized, those who are aspiring to become a member of the church, they are what? Indwell with the Holy Spirit. And how do we know if someone is indwell with the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit. They walk in step with the Holy Spirit. They have evidence of a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember what Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And we are, think about that, this small congregation here, the Lord looks at us and He sees as a much more glorious temple than all the glory of Solomon's temple. Brothers and sisters, have you thought about that? Just look around. Look around. When we get together as a church, we are more glorious than the temple of Solomon. And Herod the Great, when he tried to build the temple, we have much more glory and beauty because of our union with Christ Jesus and the glory of the new covenant. One more, the church as the body of Christ. The church as the body of Christ. And that's the most famous metaphor for the church in, in Paul's letters. He's frequently referring to the church as the body of Christ. So, for example, he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Or he says in Ephesians 1, And he put all things, things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is what? His body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And Paul knew very well that the Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was the head of the church. How did Paul know that? Remember Acts 8 and 9? What happens in Acts 8 and 9? Come on, you guys know Acts 8 and 9? We have. Saul, Paul, persecuting the church. He's just more and more aggravated and angry with the church. He gets letters to persecute the church. And as he's heading to persecute the church, what happens? The Lord Jesus appears to him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what, the church? Me. Wait, Saul is persecuting the church, and now Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Implying that there is this inseparable connection between the church and the head who is Jesus Christ. So Paul, through his own experience, he knew that the church was the body of Christ on earth. As the body of Christ, the church has one head, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As the body, the church submits to Christ alone. He is the head. Brothers and sisters, no denomination should be the head of a church. No denomination should be the head of a church. No pastor or pastor should be the head of a church. No board of deacons, as we see so often, should be the head of a church. And not the congregation should be the head of a church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And each local church, according to Paul, is described as a body. Implying that every single local church is independent from this official hierarchy of churches. I like what John Hammett says. He writes, The local church is not regarded here as merely a part of a larger body of Christ, but each local church as the body of Christ in that place. This is another support for the proper understanding of the church autonomy. You see how the identity of the church affects the church's polity? No local church should be isolated, but no local church needs a larger body to complete it for, or, or enable it to function. It is the body of Christ possessing full ecclesi- ecclesial status. Amen? And how many people have you heard saying that there is no church membership in the Bible? How many people have you heard saying there is no church membership in the, in the Bible? Yeah, there is no church membership like AAA or Costco or <laughs> Planet Fitness. No. But how can you say that there is no church membership in the Bible when you just read talking about the members of a body? What is that? That's sad. That's very sad. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, that we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. Look at that. Into Christ, from whom the whole body, look at this beautiful sentence, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's a beautiful picture how every member is a joint in the body and is fundamental for the body to function and grow healthy in love. The corporate community of believers grows and matures through the active participation of every individual member. That's why if one member is not functioning as he should in the body of Christ, serving as he ought to, loving, supporting as he ought to, the whole body is what? Affected. Then suddenly, because of your laziness, because of your selfishness, you are burdening other people. That's how the body gets sick. Why we have problems? Because one organ, one member of the body is not functioning well, and then you get sick, you get an infection. And the same with the body of Christ. That's what Paul is telling us. There's a dynamic image of the individual members of the body receiving nourishment from Christ and feeding one another. So the whole body grows together. 
So as we think about the nature of the church as the ecclesia, ecclesia, the assembly, the, this heavenly replica coming to earth, as we think about the, the church as the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, how can you read that and still believe that the church is a mixed congregation of believers and unbelievers? That makes no sense. And I love, I love my Presbyterian, my Dutch Reformed brothers and sisters. But that's not in the Bible. The church is not a mixed people of saved and unsaved. The church is not a temple of the Holy Spirit and then a temple of Satan at the same time. The church is not a temple composed of holy bricks and evil bricks at the same time. The church is not the body of Christ with members who are in Christ and members who are in Adam. No. All these metaphors help us to see the nature and the identity of the church as a group of regenerated people indwell with the Holy Spirit who love God. And brothers and sisters, as we are going to move on the next sermons to talk more about the church polity, how we see uh, our understanding of being a Baptist, how that affects our church, Remember that it's all flowing from the identity of the church. The church is composed of true believers. Regenerated church membership. The church is her members. There is no church apart from a healthy membership. And it's this understanding of the nature of the church that controls all that we do as a church. You guys know how we... Make sure when people come and say, hey, we're thinking about becoming members. The whole church, the whole church votes in accepting people as members. Why? Because we believe that we need to make sure that we are welcoming people who are holy. People who love the Lord, people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I have people coming to me and they say, hey, I have a bunch of questions about the church. I'm like, great, because we have a bunch of questions to you too. Don't you think they come and put us in the bench to be examined? We are examining you also. And that's why there are people sometimes they say, hey, we want to become members. Oh, wonderful. Just keep coming. Let us get to know you more. Because we do not want to be welcoming anyone who just says, oh, I'm a Christian. We strive to keep the holiness of the church. And we know that we cannot... We cannot fully and perfectly keep the holiness of the church. That will happen when Christ comes back. But that doesn't mean that we are going to treat the church as whatever. Whatever. Just bring the Mass. Let them come. Partake of the Lord's Supper. Let them just be involved. No, we, we take seriously here membership because we believe that the nature of the church is vital. We want to know that people who are becoming members in this church, they are in Christ. They love the Lord. And that affects what we do as a church. Because you don't want to be voting on receiving members, excommunicating members, important gospel decisions in the life of the church with people who are unsaved. That would be a terrible thing to do. And a terrible reflection of the church of Christ. And sadly, that's what's happening in our days. We have so many people in churches 
And because they just want to entertain people and they don't care about the nature of the church, it's all about being cool, being nice, being big. And then you have all this bunch of people who have never been born again declaring themselves to be Christians and part of churches. And brothers and sisters, it's vital to keep in mind who we are because what we are, who we are, affect how, what, what we do as a church. And as we approach the Lord's Supper, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that the Lord's Supper was given to the church. Amen? The Lord's Church was given to the church. Most people, when they get offended about not partaking when we, we fence the table, and I believe that every healthy church should fence the table somehow. It's going to vary from church to church how they fence the table to protect the sanctity of the, the, the table and the church. And, and it's vital. One of the reasons why we fence the table, why we protect the table, is for the well-being of the person who is partaking. Because the Lord promises judgment upon those who partake in an unworthy manner. So instead of getting angry, people should be joyful. But one of the main reasons why people get offended is because they have this idea of the Lord's Supper that's a private thing. That's why people partake of the Lord's Supper at weddings. That's why they partake of the Lord's Supper at home. Because they think it's private. So they come here and they have no commitment to the local church. They don't love the church. But they come here and they want to partake because that's going to make them feel better. No. That's an ordinance for the church. The church of God to proclaim that their love for the Lord, their communion with the Lord, and their communion with one another. That's what the bread represents. We are partaking of one another. We are united with one another. So there is two aspects of the Lord's Supper. There is the vertical aspect, our fellowship with the triune God, and consequently the horizontal level of partaking of fellowship with one another. So, we don't want to just say no. I think it's very important for us to say, hey, the Bible gives us guidelines for whom should be partaking of the Lord's Supper. But at the same time, it's a table that we invite people. We invite people. Hey, like you have in your bulletin, if you, have, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have been baptized, if you love the church of Jesus Christ, if you have a life of commitment to the local church, and of course there are seasons in our lives where, oh man, I'm finding a different church. But there is a pattern in your life that you love the local church. You have this affection for God's people. Man, you're welcome to partake with us. But what we do, we don't want people who have not been saved, have not been baptized, and they have no commitment to the church suddenly show up and say, hey, I want to partake because it's going to make me feel better. That's not how that works. And that's out of love for people and above all for the Lord Jesus. So, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, I just want us to keep in mind the glory of the Trinity, the Father making us His people, the Spirit indwelling us, and we now being part of the body of Christ in union with Him. 
So let us pray and ask the Lord to help us. May the Lord help us. Father, we, we come before you and we humbly state our need. We declare our need of you, Lord. We thank you for your work, your Trinitarian work in redeeming our people. Saving a people for yourself, a people who did not deserve to be saved. And Lord, as we prepare to partake of your supper, your table, we are so thankful that you have established this ordinance, Lord. You are the one who commanded your church to do that in remembrance of you. So we pray right now, Lord, we pray that you bless this time, prepare our hearts to worship you through the ordinance. Lord, this is a beautiful, a beautiful time when the whole church is preaching together through actions. We are symbolizing the gospel through this cup and the bread. So please help us. How wonderful, how gracious, how marvelous it is to receive a broken Christ into our broken hearts. How wonderful it is to feed on your body Broken for us. Drink of your blood shed for us. And we know, we know that we are doing that in remembrance of you, Lord. It's not like your physical body or physical blood is there by no means. But there's this glorious aspect of proclaiming, remembering, bringing to mind, embracing the truth that we are in you. So please help us. Help us to partake in a manner that resembles your gospel in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.